if you are new this Sunday, I think that you, you probably picked a pretty good Sunday to be here. We're in this sermon series right now called The Abiding Life. And, uh, and the scene is this. It's Passover in Israel. 2,000 years ago, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. This is a night before he goes to the cross, just a few hours before he's arrested. And he gathers his 12 disciples together in this upper room, and they're having a meal together. Now, if you know anything about kind of Passover history, particularly in Israel 2,000 years ago, this would have been like a really happening time. So just thinking about our culture and context, maybe like Christmas time might be like the closest thing. So like a lot of people would have been coming into town. Uh, the city would have been a buzz. Everybody's having festivals and parties and banquets. And so just like this really happy, festive time. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sure the 12 disciples just thought, man, this is gonna be a awesome party with Jesus. And so they get into this upper room. They're having this last meal. And Jesus is just sort of giving them all these really rich, deep, practical truths. But then last week we saw Jesus kind of threw a curveball, didn't he? So he goes, hey, you know, they're having this great time. And, and all of a sudden he goes, hey, when are y'all going to betray me? Everybody's like, oh, dang, <laughs> what? Is it me? Is it me? And so they're going around the room. And then all of a sudden Judas walks out of the room and and he's, he's going to sell out Jesus for some, for some silver coins. And so all this is going down. If that wasn't crazy enough, then, then Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, hey, Peter, you're actually gonna deny me three times tonight. And so, man, they, they, all these disciples, their world's kind of flipping upside down, right? So as we step into chapter 14, and if you have your Bibles this morning, let me encourage you, go ahead and open up, turn it on to John chapter 14. We're gonna be in the first 14 verses of that chapter. And as we step into this new chapter, the disciples are really troubled. And you can understand why. Like they're, they're deeply troubled. They're disturbed. They're like, man, what's going on? I, I thought we were just having a party with Jesus. I thought we were gonna fill our bellies, eat some, some good food, have a couple of drinks, have a few laughs, maybe pray, maybe learn some cool stuff. And all of a sudden, our world has just been like flipped upside down. And Jesus is like, I mean, you're gonna betray me and you're gonna walk out on me and I'm about to go to the cross and you're not gonna know where I'm going. And they're like, man, hold up. What is happening here? It's just chaotic. And I, and I love Jesus' response to his guys in verse one of chapter 14. Listen to this. Jesus says to his guys, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, I just, I, I, I love that, that Jesus sees their turmoil and his first instinct is to comfort them. Aren't you glad that we have a savior who desires to comfort us in our affliction? He goes, guys, come here, C circle up. I can see the worry in your eyes. I can see the concern in your eyes. I want you to listen to me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this is a lot easier said than done in my life. Like for me, typically when I find that my heart is troubled, it just sort of happens. Like I don't have to make a decision, right? I don't wake up one day and be like, yeah, I'm gonna, I want my heart to be a little troubled today so I can grow spiritually. No, something typically happens. It's just a, a circumstance, a situation. Somebody cuts me off in traffic or, you know, I, you know I, something happens and I just find myself in this situation where my heart is troubled and I didn't choose it. I'm just, I'm, I'm there. And the reality is, man, we, we live in a troubling world, do we not? We just, we, we live in a troubling world. It's hard not to have a troubled heart most of the time. Between viruses and shootings in grocery stores and gosh, wars and natural disasters and tornadoes and people who we love getting sick or maybe even ourselves getting sick, people we know and love dying. 
I don't know anybody in their right mind who would say, man, we don't live in a troubled world. And Jesus is acknowledging this fact. This is one of the things I love about scripture. The Bible, if you've read it, you know, does not sugarcoat anything. It's very open and very real, sometimes even raw and honest. And Jesus is acknowledging this reality. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't just leave his disciples there and he doesn't leave us there, right? Jesus is not like, yep, things are, things are looking pretty bleak, boys. Like, <laughs> things are looking pretty bad and you guys probably should be depressed. You, pro- you probably do need a few anti-anxiety meds because I'm heading back to heaven. Good luck, Good, you know? Thankfully, that's not Jesus's response to them when they have a troubled heart, and it's not his response to us when our heart is troubled either. No, he gives them hope. In fact, he gives them the antidote to their troubled hearts. Look at verse one again. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And so here's the first application point I want you to see this morning. Number one, the antidote for a troubled heart is Jesus. The antidote for your troubled heart and my troubled heart is Jesus. Now I know what some of you are thinking, man, Chris, that is such a pastory answer. Man, that's so like Christian cliche, like the answer to everything is Jesus. Tell us more, pastor boy, what else you got up your sleeve? Now, now here, here, here's, here, here's why this is actually really profound, okay? So, so the Greek word that Jesus uses for believe there, when he says, I want you to believe in me, is actually pistuo. And that, that means to fully commit, to fully place all of the weight of your trust on something or in something. So this is, listen, this is where I think a lot of American Christians go sideways and kind of get, get off track. This is not what Jesus is talking about here when he says, believe in me. This is not just an intellectual belief, right? In, in the way that I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, right? Like I wasn't there, you weren't there. I'm just kind of reading a book and I'm trusting a whole bunch of eyewitness accounts, that he actually was the first president of the United States. So I can intellectually believe that, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is saying is, man, I want you to place the full weight of your trust and your commitment in me. It's sort of like when I, when I travel uh, internationally for like a mission trip or something like that, or back in the days when I, when I could travel internationally, I, I could say, I could get to the airport, I could buy my, I could have my plane ticket in hand, And I can say until I'm blue in the face, hey, listen, I I believe with all of my heart intellectually that this airplane barreling through the sky at 40,000 feet going 500 miles an hour over the largest ocean in the world for 15 straight hours can get me safely to my final destination. But if every time I'm about to get on the airplane, I turn back, I'm like, man, I I, I know that I I, I intellectually, I believe that, but I, I really don't wanna place my trust in that airplane. If I turn around and walk away and never actually get on the plane, do I really trust the plane or do I just have an intellectual belief? Now, at some point, if I, if I really believe in the sense that Jesus is talking about here, I have to actually step onto the airplane and strap in and, and go. And the truth of the matter is our world understands this. Our world understands that we all have this sort of instinctive, deep desire to, to have an all-in belief in something. In fact, you may remember a couple of years ago, Nike launched a campaign and the the slogan for this campaign was believe in something even if it costs you what everything believe in something even if it costs you everything see we all instinctively know that we need something to believe in that's bigger than ourselves to give our ourselves away to something that's bigger than us now nike says it doesn't matter what you believe in just just choose something 
Just choose anything out there. Believe in it. Place your, the full weight of your trust in it. Give yourself away to that thing, whatever it is, even if it costs you everything. But Jesus steps onto the scene. And he says, no, 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 no. Don't just believe in something. No, don't, don't just believe in anything. Believe in me because I'm the only one. I'm the only thing that can satisfy you in a way that nothing else in this world can. See, I think the issue for most of us is we tend to think that what will satisfy us in life, and this is, it, if you think about it, it's not even logical, but most of us find ourselves in this cycle. Most of us think that what, was, what will satisfy us in life is just to have a little bit more of what we already have, right? So if you have a little bit of money, the tendency is to believe, man, if I just had a little bit more, if I, if I, if I just had a little bit more, a little bit more money, then, then I would be satisfied and then I would be happy. If I, if I just had a little more clout or recognition at work, man, if I could just climb that corporate ladder, just one more rung, then I would really be happy and I would be satisfied. Or man, if I just had a little bit more sexual fulfillment, if I just had a little bit more time off, instead of two weeks vacation, man, if I just had three weeks vacation, I would finally be happy. But listen, believing that having more of something that you already have is finally gonna make you happy is foolish. And Jesus, what he's doing here is he's offering us an alternative. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Friend, the antidote for your troubled heart this morning is Jesus. Not knowledge about Jesus. I'm talking about knowing Jesus. Placing the full weight of your trust and your faith in him. At some point, we gotta step on the airplane. And Jesus continues in verse two. As he comforts his disciples in their despair, he says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Now, for me, when I was studying this week, it kind of flashed back to youth camp in the 90s. Anybody grow up in the 90s, go to youth camp? There was a song called My Father's House, I think. Y'all remember that song? Big, big house. Remember that? Lots and lots of rooms. Big, big yard where we can play football, right? And we know there's gonna be football in heaven, all right? So that's where that song comes from. It's John 14, verse two. In my father's house, there are many rooms, Jesus says. It's like, yeah, cool, cool your jets. There's plenty of room for you where I'm gonna go. And then he says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And so Jesus says to his guys, listen, not, not only will belief in me, again, not just the intellectual kind, the, the kind of belief that places full trust in him. Not only will that type of belief be kind of a, a healing balm for your troubled hearts, but I'll do you one better, Jesus says. I'm going to leave and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna prepare a place for you. Now, how many of you know, if Jesus Christ goes and prepares a place for us, it's gonna be a pretty amazing place. And he says, in my father's house, there are gonna be many rooms. And not only that, I'm gonna come back for you and I'm gonna bring you so you can be with me forever and ever and ever. Now, here's something that I know to be true about myself. And I just, as I was looking at this passage this week, I, I was convicted. And you may find that this is true about you. In fact, I would argue that it's probably true for most modern day Christians, especially in a Western context. And here, here's, here's my struggle. Most of us, I think, don't spend nearly enough time thinking about heaven. Like, honestly, just, just kind of think back. When, when's the last time you literally sat down and just spent any amount of time at all thinking about heaven? Or for you, is it just kind of a, a, a fleeting thought? You're like, yeah, grandma's up there and one day maybe I'll, I'll, hopefully I'll be up there. Most of us spend 
far too much time thinking about everything except heaven. We never really think about heaven. If we, if we believe in heaven at all, we kind of almost think of it as something lesser than this existence, lesser than this world, lesser than this life. In fact, most of us, if we're being honest, we kind of picture heaven as being kind of lame. Don't we? I mean, I know for me growing up, even into my, my teen years and early 20s, man, I always pictured heaven as just like this place where everybody's floating on clouds, wearing a toga, maybe playing a harp. It's just like, man, I don't want to go there. That's like hell, man. I don't want to do that. But in Revelation chapter 21, John gets this, this vision, right? God gives him this vision of the new heavenly city, the new Jerusalem uh, coming down. And this angel gives John in this vision, actually the, the measurements of the new Jerusalem. In fact, it says it's 12,000 stadia on all sides. Can you believe that? 12,000 stadia. And most of you are like, I have no idea what it says. I didn't know either. I had to actually, I had to look it up. Um, smarter people than me have, have actually done the research, done the math. Basically, from what I understand, this is a city that will be about 15,000 times the size of London, England. 15,000 times the size of London. An engineering professor named Henry Morris did all the calculations. He estimated that in the new heavenly city, that city will be able to easily hold about 20 billion inhabitants. And that will only take up about 25% of the city for dwelling places, leaving 75% for parks and whitewater rafting and mountain climbing and whatever else there is. And listen, that's just the new city. We're not even talking about the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to spend eternity exploring all of that. And so I'm just here to tell you, man, if you are in Jesus, if you know Jesus, you ought to be excited about what's to come. You ought to be looking forward to it, anticipating, like pumped up about it. And it kind of makes me wonder as I kind of just look through this, it makes me wonder if some of the fear that I see that permeates the lives of so many people, even professing followers of Jesus, is because they have such a tiny view of heaven. And so they cling to this life as if this is all there is, right? They're just clinging to this world. And so anything that's a threat to take them from this world, it just causes anxiety and fear and panic. I'm just telling you, there's nothing so unattractive in this world as a clingy Christian, right? It's like, man, you say you know the God of this universe and you think that you're going to this incredible place forever and ever and ever, and yet you're fearful of everything. Like those two things don't really sync up. Let me, let me, let me just ask you something. I had this thought as I was looking at this text. Do you think that the apostle Paul is in heaven right now in this moment going, man, you know what? I wish I would've just had like two more years on planet earth. Like I had a couple of things on my bucket list that I, that I really wanted to see Disney World. And I, man, I, I, w I wish I would have just had an, an, another year so I could have gone to Italy and kind of explored wine cunt. Like, of, cor of course not. That's not, what he's, that's not what he's thinking in heaven. So here, here's what I think Jesus is getting at. This is application number two, believer. We have to learn to live like travelers on the way home. We have to learn to live like travelers on the way home. And Jesus is saying, boys, listen, you're gonna, have, you're gonna have trouble in this world. That's a certainty. But here's the good news. This world is not your home. This is not your final destination. In fact, I'm gonna go to prepare a place for you. So I want you to live with both feet in this world, but I want you to live with your heart in the one to come. In other words, don't get too cozy here, guys. 
If you have to suffer for a few years or even a few decades, so what? Don't you know you're on your way home? You're on your way to the new heavenly city, man, where there will be no more suffering and no more tears and no more pain, only glory forever and ever and ever. I love the way C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, puts it. This will be on the screens for you. Lewis writes this. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things that things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great man who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Believer, learn to live like a traveler on the way home. And Jesus continues in verse four and he says to them, and you know the way where I'm going. He's basically saying, guys, I've been with you for three and a half years now. This, this really shouldn't be a surprise to you. In fact, I, I've been trying to prepare you for this for quite a bit of time. I've been telling you that this day was coming. Like you, you know the deal. You know the drill. You know where I'm going. And I love verse five. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, poor Thomas, man. We talk about this every time we encounter Thomas. Every time he shows up in scripture, he's doing something dumb, right? So I can kind of relate to Thomas. He's, he's either... He's either doubting Jesus or he's questioning Jesus. He even got the unfortunate nickname that has lasted 2,000 years, Doubting Thomas, right? So even today, all these years later, when you're dealing with somebody that has lots of doubts, they call you what? Like, man, you're a real Doubting Thomas, aren't you? Man, you have her in your Bible study? Sorry, she's a real Doubting Thomas, right? It's kind of used as an insult, poor guy. But Jesus doesn't seem to be insulted by his questions, or even his doubt. In fact, Jesus seems to invite his questions. He doesn't chastise Thomas. He actually lovingly answers him. So let me just say, let, let, let this passage be an encouragement to you, especially if you're new in the faith, if you're a new believer, if you're a young believer, maybe if you're just a young person, a teenager. Let, listen, ask your questions. Share your doubts. Jesus welcomes those things. If you have doubts, if you have questions, that's okay. My one encouragement to you would be to learn to doubt your doubts and ask your questions. Jesus isn't intimidated by your doubts or my questions. And this is actually, I think, from Thomas, a pretty good question, man. Jesus, we don't, we don't know where you're going. You're, you're always speaking in, in, in riddles and in parables. Jesus like, how are we, so, you haven't even told us what, what city you're going to, what country you're, like, can you drop us a GPS pin on the Apple iPhone or like something so we'll know where you're going. We don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. And then Jesus answers with one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, verse six. Jesus said to him, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He goes, Thomas, you want to know the way? The way is standing right in front of you, Thomas. I am the way to the Father. I am the way to heaven. If you want truth, Thomas, I am truth. Thomas, if you want life, I am the life giver. Thomas, abide in me. 
Walk with me and I will bring you all the way home so you can be with me forever. Now this is one of the deepest, most profound teachings of Jesus in the entire Bible and yet I would argue one of the most confrontational. Right, because Jesus says, hey look, I am not, I'm not a way to heaven. I, I, I am not one of many pathways to the Father. He says, I am the way to the Father and just in case you didn't get it, Jesus says it again, no person comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say only good people will get to the Father except through me or religious people. He says nobody on planet Earth, nobody who has ever lived, who is currently living, will live at some point in the future, will ever get to the Father, will ever get to heaven through any other means except through Jesus Christ. Now, this makes a lot of people profoundly uncomfortable, doesn't it? It does. In fact, most of the criticism that we get as believers, as followers of Jesus is based on this exclusive claim. This is problematic for a lot of people, especially in our kind of pluralistic culture of tolerance where every single view is celebrated as equal. But if you think about that, kind of that thought process that everything is equal, all belief systems, all spiritual philosophies, that, man, that is, it's just illogical, isn't it? It even violates the law of non-contradiction, which states that two competing truths can't be true at the same time. So either Jesus really is the only way, or he's a liar because there are actually many ways. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, guys, in a sea of truth claims, I want you to understand I am the truth. You got all these religions and all these philosophies telling you that they have the way to truth. I'm telling you, I am the truth. I'm telling you, I am the way home to the Father. And that's our next truth, number three this morning. And this is really great news. There is a way home, friend. There is a way home. There is one singular, solitary way home. And while that bothers a lot of people, for me, man, I just marvel that the God of this universe has created any way home for a sinner like me. And I'm just telling you, listen, if I, if I am drowning in the ocean and somebody throws me a life preserver, I am not gonna complain that they didn't throw me 20 so I could choose my favorite size and color. I'm just gonna be grateful that I'm alive in the moment. Jesus has created the way home. There is a way home. His name is Jesus. Now, this is the exclusivity as well as the inclusivity of the gospel, Right? This is an exclusive claim. Jesus is very, very clear. There's no mistaking it. He's saying, I am not a way. I am the only way to the Father, period, the end. It's exclusive. There's no other way. But it's also inclusive in the sense that everybody is invited into this way. Paul says in Romans 10, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what that word all means in the Greek? It means all. Thank you. That's why you go to seminary. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's exclusive. There's only one way to the Father. It's through Jesus Christ alone, but it's inclusive in the sense that everybody is invited in onto this pathway to the Father. This is great news. He has made a way. Verse seven, he continues this dialogue with his disciples who, by the way, they still don't get it. They're still confused. And he's trying to, he's so gentle with them. And he's so patient with these guys and he clearly loves them so much that they just, man, they don't get it. Verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. 
From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He's making a claim of divinity here. Verse eight, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. Now, Philip's been there the whole time. He's seen Jesus walk on water and raise dead people and heal blind people and feed thousands with a couple of, you know, fish and loaves of bread. I mean, he's seen all these incredible things and he's asking for more. He's like, Jesus, just show us the Father. We'll be satisfied. I know we've seen all these miracles and all these crazy things, dead people raised to life. Just show us the Father and we'll be good. Now, I gotta admit to you, if I'm Jesus at this point, I'm just checking out. I'm just walking away from the crowd. I'm having a one-on-one with the Father. Like, God, God, we gotta start over again. I'm done with these guys. We're gonna have to start a new three-year training cycle. Please send me some better guys. They don't, they don't get it. They don't understand. I'm about to go to the cross. They still, they still don't get it. This has gotta be, at least for me, it'd be frustrating, right? Verse nine, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Another claim of divinity here. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He's going, Philip, how do you not get this? If you don't believe based on my own claims, look at, look at my track record, man. Look at the miracles that I've done for the last three and a half years. That's impo- No man can do what I've done for the last three and a half years. And then verse 12, it gets really exciting. He says this, truly, truly. And when, anytime Jesus says truly, truly, that's his highlighter, right? That's his way of telling us, hey, y'all pay attention. What I'm about to say is really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me. So now he's not just talking about the 12. He's talking about every believer throughout the corridor of time and history, right? So he's talking about you and me. This is not just a promise to the 12. This is a promise to everybody who believes. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, this is amazing, watch this will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Now this is kind of a, he's pointing to, we're gonna see this next week, the fact that when he returns to the Father, he's gonna send us the Holy Spirit, right? And we're gonna be empowered for this incredible kingdom work once Jesus returns to the Father, sends the Spirit. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, aren't these incredible promises? This is like, if you just think about this for a little while, what Jesus just said in verses 12, 13, 14, this is insane. These are incredible promises, but I would also say maybe some of the more misinterpreted promises in the New Testament. Now, where the controversy sort of centers is around this one statement that Jesus makes, those who believe in me will do greater works than even I did. Now, I don't know about you, but the thought of doing bigger miracles than Jesus doesn't that seem a little far-fetched, like almost even impossible to you? I mean, after all, didn't, didn't Jesus walk on water? <laughs> didn't he raise dead people back to life? Didn't he heal, he heal blind people? Didn't he take just a, a little basket of food and make it a feast for thousands of people? He d- died himself and rose again three days later? Is he saying that I should be doing bigger miracles, like more impressive miracles than what he did? That, that just doesn't seem like that can be what he means there. Now, some have even taken this out of context to mean that we ought to be doing, as modern day believers, we ought to be doing more impressive miracles than Jesus. And that if we're not, there's something wrong with us. We probably don't have enough faith, which again is an impossibility for us to do more incredible miracles than Jesus did on this earth. 
And some churches and some pastors have even taken this misinterpretation and they've taken a little bit further and they've actually, I, I would say, they've spiritually abused believers with this. And this is typically how it looks. Hey, you, you have cancer or your kid has cancer or you lost your job and you're struggling to feed your kids. Well, I'm telling you, the Bible says that you're gonna do greater miracles than even Jesus did. And so if you just have enough faith, you've probably heard this on TV, haven't you? If you just have enough faith, God is gonna heal you of your cancer and he'll heal your kid and they will live and you'll get that job and you'll have more money than you've ever had. It's a promise in scripture. And so listen, I think there are tons of people who are walking around the world today crushed, feeling defeated, thinking it was their fault because they didn't have enough faith to heal their spouse or their kid or their mom or something like that. And man, can I just say, with boldness and love in my heart that this whole kind of name it, claim it, word of faith, prosperity gospel is not only unbiblical, it is wicked. It is evil. And if you are listening to men and women espousing this garbage, turn it off. This is not from the heart of Jesus. This is spiritual abuse. It is wicked. It is evil. It is not from Jesus. Now understand this. Do, do I believe that God still does miracles? Do I believe that he still heals, that he does signs and wonders today? Absolutely, a thousand percent. I believe that. I've seen miracles with my own eyes. I believe God is powerfully at work today. And listen, I've prayed in faith over, we prayed this morning, early 8.30, we gathered to pray over a brother in my office. I've prayed in faith over people that I've seen God miraculously heal. And I've prayed in faith over people that God chose to heal by taking them home to heaven. And I, listen, I believe in miracles. Does that mean that I think we ought to just start walking through the, the morgues of our city, commanding dead people to rise? Is that what Jesus is talking about here? I don't think so. I really don't think that's what he's, what he's aiming for here. So if that's not what he means by you'll do greater works than what I did, what does he mean by this? Now, this is really fascinating. You kind of do a deep dive in the Greek, right? The Greek word that Jesus uses there for greater works is the Greek word megas, right? Sounds kind of like our English word for, for mega. And this can also mean greater in scope. So, so greater in width instead of height, right? So not, not greater in size, but greater in impact, width, and quantity. So Jesus actually expounds this, I think, on Matthew 28. This will, in Matthew 28, this will be on the screens for you. This is after the resurrection, some of his final words to his disciples. And I think he gives clarity to what he says uh, earlier in John 14. This is, this is what he says. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I want you to take this awesome news and establish my church and my hope all over the known world. This is a miracle. This is greater work baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now you gotta remember, when Jesus was in his earthly ministry for those three, three and a half years, he had a relatively small number of followers, right? I think scholars say maybe around 120. In fact, his earthly ministry was confined to a very small geographic area in the Middle East. It was not a huge ministry. 
It was actually the disciples. It was the early church that, that took the gospel message all over the world. I mean, we see Pentecost, right? Where Peter gets up and he preaches the first Christian sermon and 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. More than, than, than everybody combined in Jesus' ministry. In that one first sermon, man, we're sitting here right now in Asheville, North Carolina, almost 2,000 years later, 6,000 miles away from where these events took place. And we are worshiping the same risen Jesus because of I would argue the greater works of the early believers who advanced the kingdom of Jesus all over the world. This is a miracle. In fact, I would argue that if you're sitting here, you're watching online and you are in Christ, you're a believer in Jesus, you are a miracle because you are dead spiritually. You are dead and God made you alive in Jesus. So does God work miracles through believers today. Does he perform sign and wonders? Yes, absolutely. But is the greatest miracle not the church of Jesus Christ expanding the kingdom of Jesus all over the known world so that one day in heaven there would be throngs of people around the throne of Jesus from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping forever and ever? No doubt to me that is the greatest miracle and I think what Jesus was talking about here. Now, Jesus closes the section by saying, ask anything in my name and I will do it. Ask anything in my name and I will do it. Meaning, when you ask in my name, right, when we are, we are praying in alignment with Jesus and his will and his kingdom, I'm gonna answer that kind of prayer. Now, understand this. This is not a, a name it, claim it. But again, a lot of pastors and churches will kind of pluck verses like this out and say, hey, man, you just claim it. Just, just say in Jesus' name, and he said he's gonna have to do it, right? So you, it's not a name and claim it. This is not a, hey, rub the genie bottle and Jesus' name, I declare that next week I'm gonna have a brand new Bentley and I'm gonna become a millionaire and I'm gonna marry a model. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, listen, as my disciples, I wanna challenge you to pray big, bold, kingdom-centered prayers and watch me work through you all over the world. So let me just ask you, believer, how's your prayer life? Now, like, seriously, how, how's your prayer life? Has your prayer life just sort of devolved into this ritualistic thing that even if you think about doing it, maybe you kind of do it right before you eat a meal or you go to bed and it's just kind of the same repetitive, mindless thing. Is that what your prayer life has turned into? Because I know that that's where mind drifts if I'm not disciplined. Or does your prayer life look like what Jesus is talking about here? Just a vibrant, alive communion with the Father where you're getting alone with God every day and you're saying, God, I'm desperate to see you work. God, if you don't show up in my marriage this week, God, if you don't show up in my kid's life, God, I got nothing. Unless you show up, God, please, I need, I need your presence in my life. Holy Spirit, would you fill me? Would you use me? God, would you save my friend? Would you save my brother? Would you save my coworker? Would you save my classmate? Would you do something? God, would you let me see your presence? Would you let me walk in your power? What's your prayer life look like? Are you praying big, bold, powerful kingdom prayers? Because here's what, she, here's what Christ is saying, and this is the final truth. 
as believers, our lives should absolutely be marked by kingdom power. Our lives should be marked by kingdom power. Church, I want, I want you to listen to me. We, we are a part of the most incredible spiritual movement this world has ever seen, the church, the bride of Jesus Christ himself. And our lives should be marked with this type of intense kingdom power. Our lives should be marked by taking enemy territory, by loving people and serving people and praying people into the presence of King Jesus. Listen, family, he is the way. He's the only way. He's the truth. He's the life. He is the antidote to your troubled heart and mind this morning. And so I just want to ask you have, you, have you placed your faith in Jesus? And again, going back to what Jesus said, this is not just an intellectual belief. In fact, in James, it says the, the demons believe and they tremble. What good is that to you? I'm not asking you, do you believe in God intellectually? I'm not asking you, do you believe that the gospel is true intellectually? I'm asking you, have you ever placed the full weight of your faith and your trust on Jesus Christ and him alone? Have you encountered the God of this universe in a transformational way in your life? And if, you're, if you would just have to be honest, whether you're here in the room or you're online, and you have to be like, Chris, man, I, gosh, man, I don't talking about some stuff I'm not sure I've really experienced before in my life and kind of grown, grown up in church and read some of the Bible and believe in God intellectually I kind of enjoy coming to church because it's fun to sing some songs and you know whatever else right but if you'd have to be honest and confess man I, I have never tasted this kind of kingdom power this kind of transformational relationship with the God of this universe through his son, Jesus Christ. I want you to know today is as good a day as any to start that walk with him. And I want you to know that he's inviting you into his family today. And so when we pray in just a minute, I'm gonna invite you to pray and give your life wholly and completely to him. And if you're here and you're already walking in Christ and you know Jesus, man, my question for you is, are you walking in the promises and the power of Christ? Or has your spiritual life just become kind of stale? Kind of rote, not really excited about it anymore, just kind of religious, just kind of going through the motions. Because God has so much more for you. Are you abiding in him daily? Are you communing with him? Are you allowing his spirit to fill you afresh every single day so he can give you kingdom eyes to see people around you the way that he sees them? Church, let's not waste any more time. There's too much at stake. Jesus is inviting us into the good life. Let's, let's embrace it. Let's live it for the good of our world and for the glory of our king. Let's pray and then we're gonna sing. God, we're grateful that when our hearts are troubled you come for us because you love us and you comfort us you invite our questions you invite our doubts you're not intimidated by those things God thank you for sending Jesus on a rescue mission into this busted broken up world of sin that we've created for ourselves to rescue us to redeem us when we had no way to rescue ourselves God we could never say thank you enough for what you've done in our lives through the gospel of Jesus 
We're so grateful, God, that, that you made a way, that there is a way home, and that his name is Jesus, and that all that call on the name of Jesus will be saved, will be made sons and daughters in your kingdom, Father. And so I just pray, if there's anyone here this morning, either in the room or online, tuned in, God, that has never crossed that threshold of faith, and maybe they believe intellectually, maybe they believed all their life intellectually in God, but they've never actually placed the full weight of their trust in you, God. I pray that today would be that day and that they would just cry out, even in this moment, in their hearts, God, save me. God, save me. The best way I know how, I wanna, I wanna turn from myself and I wanna turn from my sin and I wanna cling to the precious blood of Jesus for forgiveness of my sin. And the best way I know how, God, I wanna give my life to you, Jesus. I wanna follow you for the rest of my days. And Father, for those of us who are already believers, would you help us to walk in your promises to walk in your power, to not be satisfied, God, with religion or playing church games or just going through the motions, God. Give us a hunger, give us a thirst to walk in your kingdom power through Jesus. And it's in his awesome, beautiful, magnificent name that we ask and we pray all of these things. Amen. Church, would you stand with me as we sing?